Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. I'm joined today by a veteran of The Rodcast and business partner, Adam Lawrence, if you want to hear about Adam's story, you can go back a fair few episodes now, I think it is. Uh, have a listen there. It's absolutely fantastic. And you'll hear about Adam buying up half of the residential houses in the UK. But today we thought it would be pretty useful to have a quick chat, or probably won't end up being very quick, but have a kind of discussion really about some of the macro events going on in the economy about what's happening in the stock market and how that all looks like it might affect property, whether that's house prices, maybe offices with the work from home stuff. So Adam, what are your thoughts about what is going on? We haven't kind of had you on the podcast since I think this time last year where we talked, I think it was the day that the budget was announced in March actually, where we discussed kind of what that meant and furlough for the first time and things like that so what are your thoughts a year into this where we're at now that's right i haven't gone back and listened to that episode rod and seen how well uh, or not we did i know there was some i remember saying the words i'm gonna make some pretty wild predictions so i'm not actually sure how i did but thanks for having me back on it is obviously my favorite podcast of all and i think we did say that i believe that this could take quite a while to play out and we were in a very very early stage last year and I think if you're reflecting on the last 12 months, you'd probably say it was fair to say lots of people, including an element of the government, thought it was largely all over when we got to, say, August and we got to eat out to help out and all the rest of it. And there was that sort of spectre of winter and us not really knowing what might happen. And then obviously, as we got closer to that winter, it was kind of obvious what was going to happen. And then what we now know was a new variant coming in and really sort of ramping the figures up in a very nasty way, really. And kicking that can down the road a bit further, that's been the buzzword, hasn't it, really? We've seen that and we've seen, obviously, in the last few days before recording this point, we've seen the Times go on the record to say, right, stamp's going to be extended, that's it. We know it's going to be three months, that's a big play. And, and quite an interesting one in itself, I think, for everyone, because I thought six weeks made sense, probably, to just clear that backlog, maybe four weeks. I could get by there, but three months really gives everybody another chance and of course, it's four months, really, because you can transact in early March and even the resi buyers are going to get stuff through. So if anything, it's probably, I would say, the worst, least well-targeted policy of everything they've tried to do. And this is probably making it worse again. So I'm a bit perplexed, but I don't know what you think about that, but I'm a bit perplexed by that. To be almost, they are kicking the can down the road because they haven't got their ducks in a row to do a big overhaul of stamp duty, which is probably what they're more interested in long-term, but have bigger fish to fry right now. So, so you think they're buying three months worth of time to come up with that final reform that we thought we might see? Well, I hope so, because if they haven't, like you said, it's just so poorly thought through. So I hope it does. And there's been so many studies to show what actually the tax take on stamp duty will be like when there are reductions in certain places and things like that. So there's an awful lot of evidence for it being a fairly 
poorly thought out tax at the best of times. So I'd like to think that that will be one of the things that they do change. And- I, I did wonder, much credit here, but I did wonder if they were they kept this and that the reform was also going to be announced and they kind of leaked the extension, but the thing kept up the sleeve was the reforms already because I guess that we live in our, our property bubble, don't we? I mean, I know we talk about and we look at other asset classes and stuff like that. Obviously, we're involved on a lighter basis, but we live in our property bubble. But we could see this situation occurring seven, eight months ago, and you would think there's been enough time for the treasury to sort of concentrate partially on that. Because when you look at the devolved nations, you know, they've obviously Wales have ramped their their additional duty up to 4% to be in line with Scotland. But both of them with their devolved stamp don't start until a much higher threshold, especially when you consider the difference between the average price in England versus the average price in Wales or Scotland. So we're miles and miles, years and years and years behind the curve on that one. And I don't know, but I know I probably oversimplify these things, but it doesn't look that hard to me to kind of do the right thing with SDLT, but I don't know. I don't know. So obviously we've seen an awful lot of quantitative easing. What are your thoughts on this? Because I know going back a year when we first spoke, we talked about the idea of inflation probably being quite low on our radar because when we modelled it back to 2008, that quantitative easing ended up flowing into financial assets and it was actually quite good for property as well. And actually inflation, we didn't really see much inflation. We didn't see sort of that productivity start to push. We saw a fair bit of stagflation, but not much inflation. And, And are you still thinking the same? Are your feelings still the same as they were a year ago? And if they've changed, what's made them change? I think we very briefly sort of discussed hyperinflation. We dallied with deflation a little bit, didn't we? And the way does seem to have become a lot clearer. Um, I think at the time we talked about a tightrope, if memory serves correctly. And I think now it's fairly clear that inflation is extremely desirable apart from anything else. And there's a danger in that, of course, because no government is going to state that their policy is to inflate it could be very damaging and savers and that the voters, you know, the, the 50 plus voting public with the savings that want to get something in the bank have scrabbled for one and a half percent over recent years and now down the barrel of 0.01 and limited prospects of that really improving for the near future. So I think they've crystallised a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I think before we kind of go into detail on this, it's probably handy to give a quick description for the listeners of what all these terms are. So inflation essentially is when an economy's currency buys less goods and services. Deflation is when the currency can buy more goods and services, so the same unit of currency can buy more. Stagflation is similar to inflation, but it has low productivity or possibly negative productivity in terms of GDP output and often has high unemployment, although mm-hmm. last time. And then productivity is the efficiency with which a country combines capital and labour to produce a given level of output, which usually yeah. is more capital and labour. So I think in terms of that, it sounds as if you feel that inflation is certainly more desirable by the government I'm guessing that's because they've got huge amounts of debt now because they've printed all this money. 
Absolutely. Obviously, inflating it will devalue the amount of debt they have, making it easier to not necessarily pay back, but make that nation or that economy seem better in a credit profile, which is really what it's all about, rather than actually paying it back. People don't say, oh, well, they'll never pay it back. Well, that's not really the whole point. The point is about that economy or nation's credit worthiness. So let's start with all that money that's being printed. Where does it go and where should it go? Yeah, great question. So I think the big difference you'd have to highlight between the QE of the early 2010s, let's say, and its impact straight into assets, as as you say correctly, and what's happened, the stimulus, if you like, and it's a funny way in which we've stimulated things. The US is very much more straightforward. Have some money in the mail. There you go. Get on with that. Get out there and spend it. We'll bump up the unemployment benefit. Now, of course, we've done that with the furlough scheme. But there's also a small matter of, what, 50 billion quid's worth of loans that have gone out with some question over how many of them will be paid back to businesses and to sole traders, which has really been almost like direct stimulus, but for a certain targeted sector of the economy. So Inequality, we won't go into that tonight, I don't think, but there's going to be long-term implications. (laughs) (laughs) There'll be long-term implications in that for sure for the next decade, incredible implications. And Andy Haldane, the Bank of England, think that there's maybe 250 billion in reserve ready to be fired. I don't think we'll see that all in one sudden splurge, but I see the next two or three years looking like a bit of an economic boom in that terms and they've obviously paid household debts between 30 and 40 billion they've they've been reversed it's the the biggest amount of household debt coming down that there's been i think in the last sort of 50 or 100 years or something like that so i think definitely that's one thing i was surprised about looking back from last year thinking oh well the brits do like to spend their money i was quite impressed that actually when that stat came out that it was a surprise i think it's, it just shows that the brits like to spend their money but they like to spend it on hospitality and leisure i guess exactly well yes that's true isn't it but it's interesting what you said about kind of the differences between 2008 and i think where we think or feel that inflation does start to bite is where it is getting into the hands of the people in the daily economic output i.e spending like you said hospitality and leisure and by giving it in the form of bounce back loans in the form of furlough it is getting out to people there and it's increasing disposable incomes because they're not outspending in hospitality and leisure so that's kind of been one form of it So there's definitely an impact of getting into the hands of the population, albeit by SME businesses, really, rather than what happened before, where it goes into the financial assets and the stock market and moves prices. Not to say that people have now got a bit more disposable income, so they have been spending a bit on the stock market and things like Tesla and Bitcoin and things like that. Absolutely. I'm sure we're going to go off on many tangents in this discussion, but what are your thoughts then on some of those markets? And are they, in your opinion, in a bubble? I've certainly got some opinions on these, and I don't know what I mean. Absolutely, hell yeah. We are nearly in a bubble of the magnitude of the 1999.com bubble, in my opinion. There was a great stat that I remember hearing years ago about Cisco Systems in 1999. And at one point, it was pride, because obviously one of the many ways to value stocks, as I'm sure people know, And one of the favorite ways is sort of discounted cash flow and looking at future growth of the economy. And the Cisco stock price at the time, I think, 
if it had grown as the stock price represented, bearing in mind a fair discount rate, it would have been bigger than the entire economy of the USA within 40 years. Now, of course, definitionally, that was absolutely impossible. And it showed you the PE ratios and stuff was trading out at the time, and it was all bonkers. And then you look at Tesla, you've mentioned there, and you just think, that just puts all... There's the biggest bet on Elon Musk coming up with an idea that even he hasn't come up with yet and pulling it off, or managing to charge people for mining asteroids on the way to Mars and producing all the commodities we'll ever need again. And this stuff is... I just think it's a pipe dream, Rod. I think it's ridiculous. Elon Musk is a Marmite guy, isn't he? And I love him and I hate him. He does both for me. But I just can't see any, apart from a short squeeze, I can't see any form of justification for where Tesla's stock price has been. And obviously now it's on a bit of a, a bit of a drawdown. Everyone's talking about how much he made in Bitcoin while he was losing, while the market cap was going down 50 or 60 billion or whatever. I think they made in total about 750 million on bitcoin that's before it's, it's now dropped down and in that time they lost i think it was 55 billion with a b on their share price but i think in terms of kind of it being a bubble there seem to be kind of three main things that happen when something's in a bubble one there's outrageously high valuations which we are seeing at the moment if you go back to the japan bubble again around the dot com time they had never had anything above 29 times earnings until then and it went to 65 times earnings yeah yeah yeah. but we've got stocks like that at the moment and that's what's quite concerning so you've got crazy high valuations and then you've also got acceleration so going up at quite a speed towards the end and then the last bit is kind of crazy behavior and we've certainly seen a bit of that with things like the short squeezes, the GameStop stuff, retail investors coming in, which I think I can't remember who says, who, well, it's age-old kind of cliche, but as soon as the financial pages get onto the front page of the paper, you know you're getting into the global territory. Right? It's the old, when the shoeshine boy or the taxi driver is telling you about his stocks, you know that you're in an interesting spot, yeah. aren't you? So, and that's where we are. But, it, but it's now Robin Hood and all the rest of it makes it so accessible. Well, it does. It, yeah. it, it's cool to be doing that stuff at the moment as well. And just going back to that dot-com bubble, the Nasdaq, which kind of housed all those tech stocks, dropped by 82%. So 82%. That's right. That's right. And the S&P dropped by 50%, obviously still huge amounts. And when bubbles do burst, normally they overcorrect. So they go further down than really what they should and then they creep back up. So there is that point again, but timing is pretty tricky. So going back to QE, if you can for a minute, what should the government be spending money into? What should they be putting it? If you go back to what we, and obviously we've learned a lot about QE and its effects, really. not that QE was invented in 2009 or whatever, because as you say, Japan has been using it for many years. You can go back hundreds of years and see examples of QE effectively. But we've learned a lot about sort of the incidence of QE, I suppose. And as you said earlier, where the money goes and what they should be doing. I remember back to, and some of this might sound a little bit self-interested or maybe me hoping for stuff that would benefit what we're doing at the moment and stuff. But if you think back to 2011, 2012, they had a funding funding scheme. The Bank of England would basically would give discounted capital to banks who were lending to SMEs. And I think Lloyd's made a reasonably good fist of it. They didn't do what they wanted 
them to do. They didn't get many, many, many billions out there. But the idea was solid. And I know we've talked about this a little bit. Something at the moment that looked like something supporting franchises. I mean, obviously, the government's put some serious time and thought and money behind the kickstart scheme and getting 16 to 24s off universal credit. I've got to admire that. I think that's the right thing to do because ultimately, I saw a stat the other day saying, I think 33% of the unemployment is in the under 25s that's been created by COVID. So we talked a bit, people often talk about good and bad debt in property, but also we've got good and bad inflation potentially, we've got good and bad unemployment. And I'd like to see something that the kickstart scheme get fully behind that, but also something that supported startup businesses, um, supported franchisees to take stuff on in growing industries. I think that would be real. It would really have a good impact at the street level, which is where every good economic boom starts, really. Yeah, it's the grassroots, isn't it? And I think yeah. what's important is that investment is put into infrastructure. I think that's so key to get an equality. Well, let's, let's just pause on that for a moment, because when we did speak, as you say, about a year ago, there was this incredible announcement which flew under the radar in the budget of 600 billion being invested over four years. Now, I'm not sure what the figure is over the last year, but obviously there's been a few things getting in the way. But I, again, applauded that because what a great time to do it when you can borrow money at the, what the time was cheap, which obviously has got cheaper. But really, an idiot should be able to invest in the infrastructure of the UK and show a positive return over the next five or 10 years to the government. To me, I think it's obviously infrastructure. I think education and trading is a big one, like you mentioned, with the Kickstarter, the retraining people, where we've got industries that are clearly on a little bit of a knife edge, like retail. And we've got other interest industries that they could potentially go in if they're reskilled. And then I think the other big one is just research and development. And this is where the government's really got to take a bit of a venture capitalist kind of view on things. And look, some stuff's not going to work, but you just need one or two things to help kick you off. And and also things like green energy and all that sort of stuff, I think are really, really great things for them to be investing in. So hopefully... Yeah, if you follow the sort of pro-climate change, anti-climate change lobby that exists out there, both sides with significant self-interest, to be honest, and you then throw in the fact of the time we saw climate change was obviously massively on the agenda before the pandemic hit and you had Extinction Rebellion making headlines left, right and centre and it really got it to to where the anti-climate change lobby really wanted to get it to for years. And then we had a lockdown, a proper lockdown, and we had no cars on the road, and we had all this pollution being lifted, and all this wonderful, while we were all sitting at home sort of watching it, and and that kind of made some waves. But the crunching of the timescale of the green, you know, the the diesel and petrol cars, that's obviously happened relatively recently. From our specific perspective, the EPC is going to see by 2025. This is uh, hundreds of, well, it's, it's many billions that need to be invested to achieve that. That's many exactly what I mean by infrastructure. It's not just sort of transport like the government talks. It's the, I don't know, getting double glazing into every house, getting roof insulation in there. If they want to get rid of gas boilers, then and they want EPCs to be down to sea, then they've got to be putting grants into that. And they've got to be doing stuff like that because that's going to have a huge impact down the road. And I think this all comes back to how you can increase productivity. Just stay on that. Just hold that thought on the EPCs for one second because we don't see a lot of joined up thinking, I don't think, at the governmental level. And look, it's hard. It's not an easy thing that they have to do. 
But if you put together the real driver for EPCs with the need for more electricity because we don't produce enough in the grid at the moment with the electric car, PV does an awful lot for your EPCs. And PV had a great subsidy years ago that if it had been done and calculated and crafted correctly, it would have seen 20% of the houses in the UK have solar panels by now. Instead, it's a tiny fraction of that. And that was something that I'd like to see push forward because I think solar is ultimately the ultimate renewable in many ways. But let's go back to productivity and where you were going. So on productivity, and I'm going to go a little bit kind of off-piste here. I've been looking into where this can go. And one of the things that I've been reading up on that is quite concerning to me is population growth. Now, I'm not talking about kind of net migration and things like that. I'm talking about the population. And when I'm talking about that, we can split that population up into labor and non-labor. So people, labor would be people that are contributing to that. And the non-labor would be those that aren't. So one example is the declining growth rate of workforce workers. Okay, so a workforce worker is is not going to be someone under the age of 16. And is probably not going to be someone over the age of sort of 65. And what's interesting is the older generation in the whole of the developed world, so not just the UK, but the whole developed world is much larger as a percentage of the population than it was one generation ago, which is 35 years. So an example of that is China, which has been going absolutely sort of great guns over the past few years. China is five times what it was in 1965 in terms of the population of over 65s. The percentage of the population that's over 65 in China is five times where it was. This is the combination of life expectancy going forward a long way because yeah. of the economic boom. Okay. Um, and the one-child policy, of course. Well, hold on. Is- I'm getting on to this. It's going to get worse. Okay. So, obviously, the problem with... No, I'm not gonna, this is going to sound very bad, but the problem with the older generation in terms of productivity, yeah. they cost a lot because yeah. they're contributing in that way, but they often take a lot of care and they take a lot of labour workforce to care for them. Now, when you double that up with the fact that we've had the baby boom sort of a couple of few decades ago, now what seems to be happening is a baby bust across the developed world. And that can be brought about by a few different things. So people are choosing to have less babies, okay, at the moment. In the developed world, it's now kind of having families are having two kids instead of three, or maybe even one instead of two. Women, for obvious reasons, want to solidify their career before starting a family. So that's happening later. There's declining fertility rates of the average couple that are having a baby because of that, because people are older. There's also, (laughs) this is where it goes a bit off piece, there's massive endocrine disruption, which has caused sperm count in the developed world to reduce by a third, by 33% in the last 30 years, okay? And then our fertility rate, okay, so the rate at which... Couples are having babies in the UK is 1.7, which is the lowest yeah. it's ever been apart from during the bubonic plague. Now, I was going to say, the last time I looked, I think it was about 1.86, something like that. So that wasn't that long ago. 
So what this means, okay, so currently one in 15 couples with the fertility are experiencing difficulties when trying to start a family. And infertility is growing at 2% a year. So in 20 years, the average couple trying to have a baby will have problems. Now, that is pretty alarming for me. Okay. Remember, this is all obviously the growth. So we'll get back to how this affects housing and property in a bit. But looking at productivity, how is that going to affect productivity in the long term? Well, we're taking away labor. Now, we've got proportionally less people joining that workforce and more people to care for. That's going to affect productivity. So where you've got labor markets that are strong, okay, and what I mean by strong is there's a lot of labor to pick from, what normally happens, and this is where it kind of topsy-turvy, is that when you've got a strong labor market, you've got a lot of labor to pick from, you can almost compete on price if you're trying to buy labor. That's where inequality can start to ramp up. Now, when you've got a shortage of labor and you've got price pressure, which increases the likelihood of inflation that looks to be coming, what you end up having is a lot more capital expenditure needed by businesses to create that nice workplace to lure the worker over. You have the bar and the table, tennis table in, yeah, absolutely. But also more capital expenditure is needed to just keep productivity where it needs to be. And also you've got the need of labour-saving devices where in the past everyone's kind of freaked out about it, but that's going to, seems to look like it's going to be coming more than ever. So what we need is the quantity and quality of the workforce, anything that's good for that, so i.e. training, R&D, education, and also getting more people into that workplace. Anything that helps the quantity and quality of the workforce is obviously going to be good for the economy and good for productivity. But also anything that helps the quantity and quality of the assets as well is going to be good for the economy and more productivity and therefore the economy. So I think when I kind of started looking at that, I just thought, wow, if that's the case, then infrastructure assets are needed more than ever. And obviously, we can then get on to the fact of what are infrastructure assets. And, well, you've got transport, like we talked about, energy, like you talked about. But obviously, homes, workplaces, property in general is one. Redevelopment of, of old retail parks into something pretty destination-style venues and things that has already crept in, in from a property perspective. I should just make the point, and again, that, to me, is fairly negative in terms of productivity going forward. Now, if you're looking at the housing market and I'm saying, right, yes, yes, we do have massive decreases in fertility. Yes, we do have massive decreases proportionally of labor entering the market. What we've got to remember is in a numerical way, we've still got more people. The population is still growing as a whole. Therefore, more people needing more houses, family sizes are smaller, all that sort of stuff. So I, think there's one, I think there's another big one that we need to throw in there, really, because that COVID has had a specific impact on, which is when you compare the UK to the US, let's say, where we have a lot of things that compare us as nations, obviously. Um, one of the big things that always stands out in the US is you have so much more square foot per person in a household. 
Now, we haven't really been too bothered by that over time, but now you've got PD suddenly, now there is nothing below 37 square metres, which is very interesting and throws a lot of viability into question. But you've got a pandemic and you've got a massive want to have more space. So there's suddenly a bit more of a premium and a value placed on those four walls that you're stuck in on Zoom calls or whatever every day at the moment. And that in itself might drive seen more extensions and things like that and also moving to places with a bit more room and paying a bit of a premium for them where where you can i think that's true but i do think this whole look i get that everyone wants space but i do think people are talking about this kind of exodus from the cities and things like that there's more than just space that attracts people to live in cities And I'm a firm believer that when things do open up where we've got this roadmap and look, something might come along again, a new variant might come and God, if that happens, let's touch wood, hope not. But assuming things open up, I do really strongly believe that there's always going to be some people that move out of the cities because that's what they want. But I think if you'd asked them six months ago versus now, I think there's a big difference in what people want. And actually, I think this third lockdown has actually created that or got rid of that feeling because people are so social. They want to be in the workplace. They want to be there. The novelty has worn off of this work from anywhere now. You said it earlier on, when a bubble pops, the pendulum swings too far back the other way. That's almost inevitable. And similarly, we were having conversations in the middle of last, or, you know, maybe late April, early May, thinking like, well, this is a constant, this is a permanent change. This is the new normal, as has been said so many times, whereas the rubber band is going to snap back a bit. But I am still pretty bearish on the real CBD city centre stuff, because I just think, You know, there are some big companies closing offices and shrinking office space. And of course, some of those we talked about the other day are are in the past the peak of their cash cow prowess and their business model is waning a little bit apart from anything else. And they're consolidating. So the banks would be a good, you know, the banks have had a tough time in the last 12 months. You can't be too much of a yardstick in what the banks are doing because we all know they want to get rid of bricks and mortar infrastructure where they can at nearly all costs and we, we talk about that a fair bit i think this could be quite interesting because we differ a bit in our opinions of that kind of central business district i mean we're not talking about housing here we're talking no. about office space on the whole really aren't we yeah and so if we take london and i know london is very very different to other cities around the uk so when i'm talking about london please do not think that that goes for every other city because it absolutely doesn't. London runs on different metrics and maybe we'll run into why that is. Or actually, if you listen to the episode with Fraser Slater, that will probably give you a much better definition of why that is. But let's take that for a minute and look at the office space in London. So before the pandemic, it was at its height or lowest worker per square foot ratio it's ever been. Okay. Now, Absolutely, I totally agree with you that not as many people are going to be in the office every single day of the week going from this. Now, I think there's a few reasons for that. I think the biggest major one is how people get there and what time they get there. Because if I'm going to get on the tube at rush hour to go into central London, that is, I couldn't think of a worse start to my day. So I do think that's a massive barrier. And 
look, there's millions of cyclists cycling into the city in the West End every morning. But when it's pissing down with rain, a lot of them don't want to. So, and I think obviously not everyone's able to. So I think one thing that has already started to change is the flexi time, what time people are expected to be in there. That's definitely staggered. And also this idea of work from home. Now, this work from home really bothers me because I think it should be called work from anywhere because so many people that work in the city and in the West End cannot work from home. They've either got kids, they might work in a little space. It's not mentally healthy to be cooped up in that way. So working from anywhere, yeah, look, serviced offices that are local to them. That's There's opportunities here. So it crosses over with hotels and stuff, potentially in terms of, like you say, that mobile work environment. I think we're going to see some interesting stuff happen in that space. Absolutely. But then again, okay, so let's imagine we've got a reduced number of people going in at all times, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is one major difference. So where we were, I don't know the exact stats on this, but let's say, for example, we were at one desk space per 50 square metres. Per 50, yeah, square, 50 feet. square foot, yeah. And now the demand is each desk space has to have 150 square foot. Suddenly, that drop in workforce that's going in at the same time is counteracted completely by the space standards. And well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But what about the, the, how temporary is that goes away on June the 21st as per the current roadmap? I think people are conscious still that they need more space and the desire is to have more space. And I think businesses are conscious of that as well. The other thing is, who was it? Was it JP Morgan that came out, I think, today that said it had a big column in the kind of what paper it was in, about work from home does not work for us. One of the big banks saying, doesn't work for us. We need the culture there of the office. We don't have that from work from home. We need people to be able to learn, to be mentored by their bosses, to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can't shadow people. Oh, it offers offers an awful lot. I think what we have, probably the one thing we haven't touched on there that's another sort of banana skin, maybe for both of our arguments, really, is... If you do get to the, because obviously there's a lot of tech firms that have come out and they don't employ a lot of people. This is a big part of the productivity puzzle at the moment. A lot of the jobs created are not in Twitter or Facebook, but the jobs that are created there get paid hundreds of thousands of pounds a year. The trouble is these market caps that they've got that have never been seen before are employing one tenth of the people that a massive company like British Coal would have employed or whatever years ago. But if you do crap the working from home thing in the service industry, what about the danger of from labour and skill from around the world? Because ultimately it brings back, we've gone through this big, you know, there's a, a classic sort of management consultancy wave of first you outsource it, now it's called onshoring or it was before COVID. But this offers a new frame on outsourcing, I think, in terms of obviously people use VAs and stuff like that. But there's some awfully talented people out there who are better English speakers than a lot of the English population who potentially, if well trained, if you've got these jobs that can work in these tiny little silos, then there's a big risk to some of this unemployment leaving the UK, which is not really where any of us want it to go, to be honest. What's quite interesting is I'm kind of put a post out the other day talking about kind of net migration and what's going mm. on in Hong Kong, visas that have already been applied for, of those people that did migrate back to their home countries, the amount of them that have already expressed that they're coming back. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, really interesting. And it was hilarious, this Financial Times report kind of trying to say, oh, there's all these people going back to their home countries. The one person they interviewed was already back in London. <laughs> it was just, come on, guys, you can do better than that. But I do think that, yeah, there's obviously going to be industries that are going to be well-suited for, for the work-from-anywhere type model. Mm. But there's an awful lot, and again, this is maybe where London being that financial services sort of place which is heavily done on relationships sales yeah i don't see it really making a big dent i think you've got a point i think the thing skating back around to sort of productivity in many ways around that i'm i've been surprised to see because i think there'll be jobs and that's why people will come back definitely but what are those jobs necessarily doing i mean one of the things that i've not seen get any coverage or take off per se as yet is using like Deliveroo or someone like that to go to the shop for you. Now, I can see that being a gigantic growth industry because there's one thing, there's massive growth in takeaways and all the rest of it and dominoes are expanding and this, that and the other. But I have this fear and it's a similar fear to what McDonald's has has happened with McDonald's over the years is that they're a bit one-dimensional. As everybody becomes a bit more, I mean, some of this fertility stuff you were talking about, I'm sure that's related to sedentary lifestyle, weight gain. Working from home won't help that. Yeah. You know, when this is over, the fitness and the weight watchers and the slimming worlds of the world, my God, you wouldn't mind owning some stock in those guys because this is like 20 Christmases piled in. I'm my fertility stocks. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But, you know, in terms of weight gain, in terms of all of that sort of stuff, but as people become more conscious on that front, that doesn't, to me, I often look a bit too far out into the future in these situations. But I think, well, I wouldn't want to own Domino's in 20 years' time unless they can do something pretty special. Maybe they'll be doing keto pizzas and all sorts of clever stuff. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they will. But I see the mileage of, if you're going back to the, the grey pound, as, as we talked a little bit about earlier, there'll be people here who never want to go to the supermarket again. And if you've got the choice, of, yeah, you can do a delivery, but you have to book in advance. You've got to, It's not that convenient. If you want someone to go to the co-op for you, you've got to pay them four quid to do it. There'll be plenty of people taking up that sort of stuff. But then the dilution effect of that unskilled labor, essentially, that provides that service is that it drags the productivity again. So one of the things I see potentially coming here is a big divergence, even bigger divergence between the skill and the tech side of things. And then the masses of labor that could come in that will drag the figures down but there will be jobs there will be buoyancy there will be employment we're getting on to a really good topic of employment and where people i think you've got headlines going right the uk unemployment is now at five percent the highest it's been in i don't know 12 years or whatever it is well what they forget is if you look at the average of uk unemployment over the last 50 years it's still lower than the average if you look at the average unemployment across the rest of Europe right now, it's still below that. Unemployment no. is not is not very high at the moment when judging that. And also it's not looking at necessarily the number of jobs that are lost. It's look at the value of the salaries of those jobs as a proportion to the value of all jobs in the country. <laughs> Hospitality, leisure, that's what you said the under 25s are most of risk. These are lower paying jobs. So when people start to talk about they're worried about whether people's affordability on the whole in, in a given area will be able to pay for house prices, mortgages, rents, 
you've got to look at that and go, well, actually, look, there's a very, very small proportion of that society that's going well, to be doing that. And like we've we, seen with house prices going nuts, yeah. We've seen some horrific headlines, haven't we, since COVID of like, oh, things are down 38% from last month. And it's like, well, yeah, but look at the extenuating circumstances here. And the same goes, lots of arbitrary moves in unemployment, like you say, and, and not asking those bigger questions. Now, you and I are very much on the same page when people talk about what's going to happen with the property market. When either of us answer that question, one of the first things we'll say is, it's not really relevant to you what's going to happen to the market. What you want to know is something like, What's going to happen to three-bed semis in Doncaster? Because that's your market, right? And that's what you want to understand. And unemployment is very similar in that way, in that, so what What the figures say, there could be some good unemployment here, losing low productivity jobs. If it finished off a few zombie industries and all the rest of it, yeah. that actually increases productivity because of the way it's calculated. And also, unemployment, having real low unemployment is not good for productivity because no. the only way to buy better labour is to pay more for it. Crack someone out of a job by paying them more. The other yeah. reason is, is things like you kind of alluded to, the zero-hour contracts and someone working five hours a month here is counted as a job and it goes up, whereas actually that's not really contributing a great deal. So you've got to take some of these kind of metrics with a pinch of salt, don't you? It's been very difficult to see, and a lot of people have just looked at the number of people on furlough and said, well, look, all those people are going to be unemployed. But of course... It's utter nonsense because the hospitality and the leisure side, as we've already said, most of them are going to be coming back to work, realistically, especially if the furlough is skillfully wound down. And I do think I've got quite a lot of faith in Rishi that he's going to get the tapering down right because they spent so much money on it already. It is his raison d'etre almost, isn't it? Is his pièce de résistance has been furloughed. And I think if you look at what it did for the UK versus the US or some other industrialised economy, we've done incredibly well as a population with actually less money, less percentage of GDP spent on that side of things. I think we'll be lauded as a bit genius. But of course, what you saw, the spanner in the works on that front over Christmas, of course, was strategic furlough. Because big businesses have had time to think about, right, a lot of businesses need more people before Christmas. Of course, that didn't work out very well because of the lockdown that had to happen, and then various tier systems and all the rest of it. But some businesses, I remember reading that Magnet had um, furloughed a lot of staff for December and January. And if you look, December and January, crap months for ordering kitchens. So they just thought, right, you know what? We can push this business either back or forward. We're not going to lose much. We're going to save a fortune. It all works. So it's even difficult to pick some of those figures apart and see who's coming. But I've been really bullish for some month now about how many people are going to come back off furlough and how we're not going to reach these. A year ago, we were talking 11%. We were 13 at the start, and then it's gradually gone down. I think now they're five, and they're already saying they're going to view that down. I don't see us hitting seven. And if you remember when Mark Carney was giving his forward guidance when way back when pre-Brexit, or a few years before the referendum, 6% was lauded as the number. If we get below 6%, we're in great shape. And like you said, we haven't been anywhere near 6% for years at the moment. So it is putting those things into context, isn't it? Exactly. So going back then to the idea of inflation, how do you think that's going to be dealt with? Because the obvious one is right when the inflation is, is starting to kind of creep up, then interest rates go up to combat that. Now, with the huge amounts of debt that the government's taken on, they're unlikely going to want to raise interest rates at all unless productivity is shooting up in, with that, which 
looks unlikely to happen based on a lot of what we've kind of talked about. So, what can they do? It's time for the R word, isn't it, really? Because this is potential regret. The extreme side of the argument is financial regression, where ultimately they'll squash the yields and continue squashing them by actually legislating to force certain institutions like pension funds to hold a certain amount of their assets in government bonds. You know, if you look at, we've discussed some interesting economies tonight and going back to the fertility thing, I think there's lessons to be learned already from Germany, Japan, and economies like that in a worse shape than we are already. And we can sort of see the future a little bit. And if we were more sensible like that, I think we could we could deal with stuff like that. But you know, we only own forty percent only we only own forty percent of our own government bonds as far as the central bank and the treasury are concerned. In Japan, that's over seventy percent. And it's still the, the system holds up. So there's still a huge amount of capacity for us to buy bonds without without repression being required. I mean, one of the things that surprised me over the time over the last 12 months is quite how robust the system really has been and how much more firepower there is in the tank if they really want to go there. So so we're saying interest rates, base rates are going to be held low artificially for several years in order to disinflate or to keep the wild horse of inflation at bay when it does rear its head. There are a number of things they're going to look at. And of course, one of the, one of the ones is going to be taxation. Because the, the clipping of the wings that can happen, I think it would be foolish. And a lot of, you know, there's similarly to the stamp headlines, there seems to be people predicting with some certainty that he's going to put corporation tax up to 23% over four years or 25% over four years. I'm struggling to see that working, to be honest with you. I mean, apart from anything else, I, I made a cynical comment the other day on one on a post just saying the only thing this will prove is what the what the Conservatives have said for many years, that this will lower the corporation tax take purely because there's been so many losses. You know, Heathrow have lost two billion and you're hearing all the annual results come out at the moment and it's ugly reading for a lot of big blue chip companies, you know? The real reality of it is that it's political. It's a vote winner. Easiest tax take, the easiest one, is reducing the 12 and a half grand tax-free allowance. Easiest one. That will create the most amount of tax take ever. But it's not a great political move. And so that's the problem. They only ever freeze it, don't they? They never want it. And then, and then the stealth of inflation. And this is a thing I think we might see over the next few years is a fair bit of stealth taxing by freezing some of these allowances, definitely. I mean, CGT is only a political football. It's not a, it's not a big amount of tax that it brings in, realistically. But tax, I think, will be used as a weapon over the next few years as inflation does start to bite. Now, we've still only at about... The expectation 10 years is about 1.4 in the UK. In the US, they're already up above two. They're at sort of 2.1, 2.2 on the 10-year longs. And they're expecting even more inflationary stuff to be going on than, than we are necessarily. So we might do a great job. You, one of the, the, UK, the UK are not really crediting the government or deriding the government there, but the UK as a whole over the last 12 months despite the amount of number of deaths that obviously has been an awful thing to see, in terms of coming out of it, in terms of planning for the future, in terms of how it's looked after the bulk of the population, it hasn't stacked up badly at all compared to a lot of other large, westernised, industrialised economies. And obviously with, with that kind of economic outlook, 
where do you see and i know this is my worst question ever because i hate being asked it because i answer a bit like you well what do you mean by property but what do you see happening in a very generalized term to property prices financial assets other asset classes again looking at property being a what is essentially a leveraged equity or a leveraged stock type asset that also has utility like a commodity so mm, what yeah. do you see happening and that's housing sorry i should, should yeah yeah that's yeah most real estate anyway what do you see happening with that i see it having a really good decade there was a really poor performance if we're going right out broadly over 2010 to 2020 over 55 percent of the uk property prices fell in real terms you know we've talked before about affordability and people say it's never been so hard to buy houses and it's utter nonsense in half the uk it really doesn't take that much if you've got a job and a partner and there's minimum wage you can pretty much still buy houses right in half of the uk so that argument doesn't really hold a lot of water and i think that the prices are going to go do a lot better than they did over the last 10 years if we're looking at the market as a whole i think you're seeing some of the disappointing areas Yield is more attractive, just, just by definition of what's happened. And last bastions of yield are being called into question here. Well, They've all been stress tested. This is a growth versus value play, isn't it? And out of every, Absolutely. Out of every recession, the low-cap value stuff grow, comes out quick. Yeah, absolutely. I was speaking to someone the other day about kind of London, and they were kind of talking about the yields, and I was just kind of like pulling my hair out going London is not about the yields when it comes to investing in housing because it's seen as a store of wealth it's so much less volatile than those higher yielding areas so when you're looking at investing in any of these assets you're really looking at the total returns over time and so when you take a a London house in 2008 which I don't was yielding very little and that crashed and only actually the house prices only lost about two percent of their value whereas you go up to newcastle where they were yielding i don't know ten percent but then they crashed by thirty percent capital value in some cases far more you look at the time it took for them those total returns to get back to that level and in london it was about two years Mm. and in some other parts of the country there's high yielding places i mean they're literally still below it now and that is just, oh, I think Newcastle was uh, just come past it like last month. That's what the difference is between them and why yield is very, very different to total returns. And I think we will do well to kind of remember that that's kind of more what it's about. Unless, of course, your outlook is of a pension. I hope the average punter who thinks about buying an HMO, I've seen so many people over the years with the mentality of buying an HMO because... If I put X into it and I get my £1,000 a month, then it's okay. And it's like, well, it's not okay. I've seen many people lose 50 to 75 grand worth of capital value on the way in for the hope of making £1,000 a month, then realising in year three that this needs doing and that needs doing and you basically need a sort of mini refurb and all the rest of it. And that the net net returns are not very good and they've destroyed that capital value on the way in. And that's why looking at yield, as you've just said, in isolation is very, very dangerous indeed. And why I like to look at the holy trinity, as I call it, in terms of getting some discount on the way in, absolutely getting some yield because cash flow is the cornerstone of any business. 
but also getting some capital growth. And it's not a vanilla trade-off between those positions. The skill is getting an extra half a percent here, one percent here, and half a percent there. Suddenly leads you to so much stronger asset. And you're with a little bit extra, your net returns can double quite easily and it's not a metric that people look at very closely it's looking at that volatility like i talked about mm, yeah 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 returns and why at that point london was more of a store of wealth in terms of where you're buying there right because of the low volatility and hope of the capital gains versus the idea of yield where people say oh the capital gains are gambled it's all a gamble this is why i hate this idea of oh no one's got a crystal ball well don't be in the investment game if you're not willing to forecast because that's what we're all doing we're forecasting on our future returns whether that's income through cash flow or income through liquidate the entire asset so look i know we've gone on a fair bit on various different kind of tangents so if i was to ask you now what do you think is a buying opportunity now that you didn't think was a buying opportunity last January before COVID? That's a great question. I would definitely point, if you were going over to the commercial side of things, I'd definitely point to hotels. But hospitality and leisure also, there will be opportunities. And there's massive sites at the moment that are mothed. There are people without plans. You could probably start by combing through these Facebook pages and see what they're doing and see if they're communicating. Because you can probably see whether they've given up or not. And I think as some of those that have given up, there's some massive opportunities in there. I think what you just said there was highlighted to me with Hilton Hotels. I remember speaking to someone who had a hotel. I said, look, you've just got to weather this storm because as soon as it comes back, it's going to be roaring. And if you're already there, you're going to pick up all that market share. Are there more hotels or less when everything reopens? There are less. There are fewer than there were last year because some have had to go to the wall. They're not going to reopen. And was there already? You know how Premier Inn and Travel Lodge and people work. They're trying to open sites. There's loads of contractors around. If you follow our infrastructure argument, which I think we're both probably fairly convinced on, there's going to be more need for this sort of stuff. There's not going to be less. And this is why Hilton, just what they did was they started buying up hotels during COVID because they knew that they, if they can increase that market share, they're just going to fly out of the block. It's a once-in-a-generation buying opportunity and then they can control even more of the pricing and the marketplace and everything else. And then you combine that with the extra money that's out there in the economy and suddenly, when you understand business and margins, you can really see why sitting on money, you could pull off a big play like that if you were someone like Hill. And I think I put this post out a few, I think it was last week or so, just about, again, it's quite London-centric about the stock of serviced accommodation units and short lets and what that had meant for rentals on the AST market in London. But actually, the kind of point was that coming out of this, those SA units that could weather that storm that will come out so strong and that are able to actually buy up one company, uh, Lamington Group, who came on the podcast previously do apart hotels, and they've actually been doing similar, and they've kept on, and they look to be doing coming out of this really well. I think people with that agility and that foresight will do. I mean, if you think about what's the average punter have done, the tap's been turned off on them, and they've gone, right, okay, let's do an AST. The ones who are early on, probably got reasonable rents. A lot of people have had to cut prices on rents as 10, 20%, whatever. But if you then throw in the mixer 
the issue of the six-month nature of the notice period for an eviction and then what's going to happen with all of that and how's that going to play out it won't be like these guys are going to be able to turn around and fire up their sa unit straight away because if you've got an ast signed in there the tenant's not necessarily going to play ball and go so that's going to be an interesting thing to watch and how those units was there something like eighty-five thousand sa units rod is that what's in your boat? 87 yeah so, I mean, I think I saw the number sort of 50,000 banded around when nobody had necessarily done the maths or whatever. That was only on Airbnb, so that didn't include any other side. So, yeah. I mean, it's phenomenal. And you think about the disruption in supply that has been created, and that's really what people like Hilton are taking advantage of. And they know it's a once-in-a-generation opportunity, and the, the old political saying would be, you know, don't waste a good crisis, but... Of course, that, this is where fortunes are made in recessions. That's where the cliche comes from, isn't it? And so any other than buying opportunities that you didn't think were buying opportunities before, apart from obviously fertility treatments, green infrastructure projects, and I guess emerging markets where that population of workforce age is going to be is booming. I think also I would say the second stepper sort of suburban market which is not one that I've ever really got too involved in. I think there's some interesting opportunities there as well, because I think there will be this kind of shift out to, if you've got to go in the office two or three days a week. I mean, this is going to be a thing that's going to be played about with over the next five or 10 years, I think, and before we know where we're going to get to. And I think there'll be some opportunities there on the resi side where stuff you might not normally look at and stuff that, if you find the very low-end investment market very competitive, which a lot of people do because it's the homes under the hammer brigade. It's low some, Yeah, there might be some air there where people can potentially yeah. take advantage and it looks quite low volatility, it looks quite safe. I think the scarring in the mind of the pandemic will be there for the next five to ten years. That will impact behaviours. I wouldn't have said that 12 months ago, that's for yeah. sure. That's interesting, yeah. Right, well, I think... Unless there's anything else, we should probably be <laughs> there because we, we're in danger of kind of talking about this sort of stuff for hours and hours. I'll be up for another couple of hours if you are, but I guess people have got lives to lead and they can't just listen to the broadcast, unfortunately. Just want to say thanks so much for coming on again, Adam. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. For those that don't know, Adam and I run a consultancy called the Ballroom Club where we have 10 SME property businesses in and it's a boardroom style event if anyone's interested please get in touch with either of us I think we've got two spaces open at the moment but up to then thank you very much Adam and great to speak with you as always Uh, thanks for having me again Rod it's a pleasure cheers that's all for this episode but please remember to subscribe or follow on your podcast platform and if you've enjoyed it please leave a rating or a review Subscribing and reviewing really does help to increase our rankings, which in turn helps us to keep getting fantastic guests on the show. And more importantly, it also means that you won't miss an episode. Huge thanks for listening.